So today I'll be talking about the perinatal practices of a small group of Amazonian Indians with whom I lived. I'll be discussing their perspectives on raising and caring for others, and I'll also be suggesting how to interpret changes in their practices and in their perspectives across generations. For this purpose, it's important to bear in mind that for the sheer hivadra, sheer heel, for the he, for the sheer dwellers with whom I worked, perinatal care begins in the womb. The process of parenting begins prior to birth. Parenting and the process of making and raising a child is something that both men and women contribute to, and fetal growth and development is a product of their of their input. These are both processes that then continue post-birth. Customary techniques are understood to be highly efficacious in meeting the needs of babies and contribute to creating an autonomously dependent, strong and cool-minded person who can live well with others. Parents, grandparents and sibling carers contribute to infant growth and it is the provision of specific types of care that enables an infant to become kin. However, rather than being passive recipients of care, babies are understood to crave and solicit proper caring practice in order to grow. And so providing care asserts your position as a responsible carer just as much as it produces the baby who you're caring for. Now perhaps this is what Marilyn Strathern suggested when she said, in this case in Melanesia, that caring praxis enables a child to grow into social maturity rather than being trained into it. Now for northwestern Amazonia Shia dwellers, caring practice praxis unfolds in close dialogue with a particular social and physical environment where they live. Shia Shia river dwellers live in the Amazon basin, in the micro-region known as the Upper Rio Negro. So that is here. I work in Brazil, just in, if you can see this little um, part of the border zone, which looks like a dog's head. I don't know if you can see here the ear and the mouth here. Well, I work in the ear of the dog's head uh, in Brazil, and it's just, a, just on the border with Venezuela and Colombia. Okay, this, is, this region is known as the Upper Rio Negro. It's a dense northwestern Amazonian expense of, expanse of tropical forest, floodplains, and waterways defined by the upper course of the Rio Negro and its effluents. So this is the Rio Negro. Here's um, Manaus, here's Manaus, and this is the Rio Negro that goes all the way up here into Colombia. Okay. The seasons are marked. During the summer season, from November to February, the weather is particularly hot. It's drier, the rivers are lower, and the river water rapids, the boulders and rocks of the riverscape, are exposed. In the winter, on the other hand, it's cooler. It rains more. The river levels are several metres higher than in the summer. The seasonality of the riverscape informs many of the region's inhabitants in terms of their livelihoods and lifestyles, and this is especially the case for the majority of the population who live in riverfront settlements or in riverside towns and cities. Okay, so if we zoom in to this dog's head area, we can see all the different ethnicities and ethnic groups here. There are some 35,000 indigenous people living here who can roughly be divided into 24 distinct ethnicities, 
With nearly as many languages, these divisions and these languages and ethnic groups can roughly be classified into three main divisions. So we have Maku groups, Arawakan groups, and Tucano groups. These are the three main linguistic groups which each of these ethnicities fit into. The Werekena, with whom I work, are Arawakan. They live here on the Hiroshie. This, this is San Gabriel, which is about three days away from the Hiroshie. This is where I work. And other Arawakan groups can also be found on the Hiroisana, which is here, whereas Tucano groups were, um, live along the Hiro Valpes, which is here. Then Maku groups live in between, in between the large rivers. So while Arawakan groups tend to live on the riverfront, uh, Maku groups prefer hunting to fishing and they have a less ornate material culture than do Arawakan groups. Maku groups are often servile to Arawakan and Tucano groups and they are also periodically subsumed by them. This is a point that I will return to again at the end of this paper. Now, the fact that Arawakan Wedekena live in riverfront locations is significant in terms of their particular lifestyles and the way they raise their children and their access to other people and their goods and services. Shia river dwellers travel along the river to fish, to get to their manioc garden sites and to visit friends and relatives. With three to four days travel, Biomedical care can be accessed in the city of San Gabriel and health teams also travel up, to, up the river and periodically visit, visit and vaccinate local communities. This is often easiest at the seasonal crossover when the waters are neither too high with fast currents causing debris to float and collide with the canoe nor are they too low which causes the health professionals to have to disembark um, and re-embark uh, their speedboats. For Shiohio dwellers, summer is a time of abundance. Because the river water levels are lower, fishing with nets and spears is much easier. It is also a time of particular industry in the manioc garden, felling, clearing and burning gardens. Plentiful foodstuffs, intensive labour and a daily convivial cooperative sentiment are all attributes that are associated with the summer's abundance. In contrast, winter is a hungry time. River waters are at their highest, and Shiaiwe dwellers say that the river is the great snake, the Boyawasu, and that it has eaten all the river's fish population, thus leaving Shiaiwe dwellers themselves wanting. So, um, in the winter season, the river is itself the Boyawasu. They understand this as the great snake. In mythic narratives, the Boyawasu gave rise to the river itself, and Shia dwellers recount how their mythic ancestors, Naparuli, chased the snake across the land, and that the snake's enormous body carved out the landscape, mm -hmm. a torrential aftermath that is the result of Naparuli and the great snake's antagonistic dialectic. In the summer season, however, the snake ascends from the water's rivers and returns to the celestial home where it appears as the great snake constellation. So it's no longer in the river and is now in the sky. This seasonally informed lifestyle has been described as hydrocentric. It's a term that describes the particular set of social cultural traits and the lifestyles and livelihood of Arawakan groups such as the Werekena. 
In fact, recent histories of ancient Amazonia suggest that this type of hydrocentricity was key in dispersing the Arawakan culture in the region and beyond it. So in ancient Amazonia, we see that Arawakan groups travelled all throughout South America um, and periodically subsumed some of, the, some of the other groups, such as the Macu groups. So the Arawakan groups have been uh, are largely responsible for the culture region of the Rio Negro. They, their practices, their hydrocentric practices, dominate that region. A further important hydrocentric feature is the contemporary and historic process of mythscaping. Myths describe how the culture hero Naperuli, so-called because to him are traced the origin of many key traits and practices, came to new lands and what he did when he arrived there. Not only did Naperuli and the Great Stakes dialectic give rise to the river, and literally, as one discussant suggested, making the map of the region, Later mythic cycles also explain and describe Napoleon's misadventures with animist riverine agents, which he pacifies and play with, plays with, generating new locales as he does so. Some of these locations are the home of ancestral animal spirits who mitigate access to fish populations. So just to give you an idea, um, this is Napoleon. In this picture, he's inscribing a petroglyph that can be found in one of the boulders on the Hiroshia. This is a map of the Hiroshia um, and all the communities, all the riverfront communities along the river. This site is here, down near Villanova. Okay, um, so here we have another image of Laparuli when he encountered the great snake who rose up as about a boulder out of the river and we can now see his petrified remains. Uh, this is another area where there is abundant in catfish and Naparuli had a dialogue with the owner of the catfish and allowed Shia populations today to access this locale in order to, sub, sub, to do subsistence fishing. Okay. These places are often avoided and respected lo locales, and some of them are also fortifying places. So, for example, here we have the place where the first woman menstruated, and it tells us what ritual was performed there. It also tells us where the first birth took place and where Amaru, the first woman, sat in the cool waters of the flooded forest in order to give birth. It also describes the postpartum covade, the post-birth observances, and how they came into being. They also show us, here Naparuli observes where the first um, woman bathed her baby and how she did so, and it shows how babies should be bathed. And a further site shows us where Naparuli made um, a basket in order to carry his child through the forest. And another site, of which I don't have an image, uh, shows us where Naparuli showed his grandson how to do the same. So we have a sense in which these, these uh, locales really contribute to the way people act and behave. All these drawings, by the way, are from students in the, in the community of Campinas, adult students, the majority of them, and they produced a booklet of the sacred sites along the Hiroshia as part of the project, as part of the school project. So from this seemingly timeless background emerges the foreground in which current practices unfold today. 
So the question of generational change and reproductive cultures emerges from this context, which orientates and guides contemporary practice. According to myth, the first pregnancy was the result of a sorceress attack. Naparulli's enemies, so this chap Naparulli, sent a sorceress curse to which Naparulli's wife, Amaru, fell victim. The curse caused her belly to swell and caused her pain. Now, at this time of early creation, women had no vaginas, so her husband sat her in a waterlogged lake and filled it with leaves. Through his powerful sorcery, he turned these leaves into fish, and he asked the fish to try and penetrate his wife to create a passage through which the baby could be born. All the fish tried to penetrate and perforate an opening for the birth canal, and only one fish eventually managed to do so. This was the jacundao, which is very similar to the piranha fish, who has very sharp teeth. So this fish was able to bite an opening, and from this the baby could emerge. When the baby did emerge with its fish-like body, it wasn't quite human, and it swam off into the deep waters of the lake. Today, there's still a danger that the baby growing in the womb is not or may not come to be a proper human person. Only <coughs> proper human care can make it so. Care is provided above all by cultivating a cool environment in which the fetus can grow. Now, the coolness I refer to is not only a cool physical environment, but is also cool in the slang sense of the term, which hold meanings of socially adept and the ability to perform highly skilled manoeuvres in the stylistically relaxed composture and by self-control. A cool aesthetic, if you will. This coolness is necessary because fetuses, pregnant mothers and neonates are considered hot, heated and hot-headed. They are full of blood and vital energy which should be tamed and directed towards proper growth. This is why pregnant mothers bathe early, when the water is coolest, to help cool down and centre the mother, counteracting her heated condition. This also facilitates fetal growth, Water penetrates the abdomen and adds substance to the fetus, contributing to the place of dwelling by producing amniotic fluids in the womb. This gives meaning to the Wedekene term for a pregnant woman, tuyawene, uh, which literally means water woman. Women also avoid tasks considered excessively hot, including men's labour, fishing with poison, poison is considered hot, and burning out canoes. <clears throat> to enhance and cultivate a cool, engaged, relaxed, unswerving, unwavering state, expectant mothers carry out their tasks purposefully and resolutely, and they demonstrate this by the rapid cleaning of utensils used after the production of manioc flour and including the prompt washing of the chibichi after the manioc mass has been expressed. So here this is the manioc mass being, uh, the manioc chibichi being cleaned in the river. Such diligent and decisive action, also evinced by the mother-in-law's suggestion to avoid eating in the hammock and sitting in doorways, is to do with the embodiment of these particular qualities that the mother herself requires for childbirth. It prevents the baby becoming crunched up in the womb and emerging in a breech position. Further, it removes the possibility that these babies will be indecisive, like their mothers, about either coming out or staying in the womb, producing a drawn-out labour. Um, 
Finally, food restrictions, often followed by both parents, ensure that the baby will not acquire the characteristics of the food consumed and therefore become deformed. So mothers avoid eating the caiman, which stays, the caiman which stays in a hole, so that the baby also won't stay in a hole. They avoid eating erratic monkeys because they don't want their baby to have that kind of behaviour after it's born. And they don't eat sloth because sloths are lazy and slow. The avoidance of all of these foods necessitates a degree of self-control by the mother. Some of these foods are particularly tasty. But in their sum, these cool-minded capabilities are part of a woman being kirimbawa, that is, potently strong or cool-minded or cool, a characteristic she is developing for childbirth, motherhood and a full adult life. Kirimbawa, cool-minded Cool-mindedness is evinced at birth, at home, by a mother remaining silent and staying seated during childbirth. Rather than getting up and moving around, a person should sit down and know how to sit in order to give birth and not make a fuss or any noise. A person who does otherwise is considered a person who doesn't know how to sit and is not a cool person. Further, breaking water is a positively evaluated sign during childbirth for the mo- and it shows that the mother has bathed throughout the duration of her pregnancy. This is important because breaking water facilitates childbirth, otherwise births can become dry and difficult because of the lack of lubrification. There are, however, certain instances when mothers find it hard to keep their cool. And this is considered legitimate when sorcery is suspected. As myth also recounts, women fall victim to sorcery, often afflicted by a jealous affine, during childbirth, and this can have some quite serious consequences for childbirth itself. Sorcery causes delays, breach positions, and hemorrhaging and death. Shamans are sometimes called in such situations, and if a woman suspects she will become the victim of a sorceress attack, she will she- seek shamanic blessings during pregnancy. Some shamans or other relatives may also warn a woman that she is likely to be the victim of sorcery, and she will decide, according to their evaluations, if she is at risk. In such rare cases, women are increasingly seeking biomedical intervention. They make the three- to four-day journey to San Gabriel while pregnant in advance of their birth so that they are prepared to go to the hospital if they need to. When they experience a delayed or breach birth, their suspicions of sorcery are confirmed. And this, more often than not, is the case. So when they do decide to travel to San Gabriel, they do often have a complicated birth. They've been warned that they will do, and, and they're in a good position to have a caesarean section if they need to. So, they consider the caesarean section an excellent intervention. In their home communities, shamans and other specialists may conduct minor surgery, cutting tumours out of the breast, for example. But they say they lack the knowledge of how to cut a baby out of the womb without mortally injuring the mother. So the caesarean section is a highly valued technique. Despite this, there are instances when mothers have been advised to go to the hospital because a visiting health professional suspecting a complicated birth has advised them to do so. If they choose to follow this advice, 
And it's always possible that a health professional, sometimes an Indian ethnicity, knows about sorcery and so is warning them because they think that they may become a victim of sorcery. The individuals who have travelled to the city are unhappy if they find that their birth is normal and routine. So obviously this person didn't really know about sorcery. So when Shia dwellers have no reason to risk to suspect sorcery, such advice about a risky birth is really resented. Sometimes they say white people just don't know. Shia dwellers are also disappointed by the attitude of medical professionals who make women lie down, which they say is no way to give birth. And medical professionals are not present during childbirth. They come in and out of the room. They're not there accompanying them throughout their birth as their husbands are in their home communities. And so medical professionals paradoxically then lack the knowledge to facilitate a normal birth. Women also complain about the post-birth diet, which they say does not help the production of milk. And they also comment on the way that babies, that they bathe babies in the hospital. Health professionals bathe babies infrequently and in warm water. In their home communities, babies are bathed in a basin full of cold water, immediately post-birth by their grandmother. It's the first thing that happens to them after they're born. And they are bathed every four to five hours and throughout the night, every time they wake or are unsettled. They're bathed for about 15 to 20 minutes in cold water. He's hot, the mother will exclaim when the newborn baby writhes in their hammock, and bathing is the preferred cooling technique. And they're always bathed before breastfeeding and later before taking solids, and later adults will also do the same before, before ingesting any food. A week after birth, when the umbilical cord falls off, this intensive baby bathing routine continues, sometimes with more intense frequency and duration, in the river. So here we have a picture of baby bathing at home, and this is river bathing. This is the first river bath a baby is taking. Shia dwellers do this because babies want to be bathed. A newborn baby under three months, which is observed to have its eyes open and is looking around observing, for more than about five minutes, is just asking to have a wash. He wants to be bathed, Shia dwellers say. Babies are nearly never heard to cry, and splash washing is nine out of ten times the choice remedy for crying. However, newborn babies are not submerged, made to recline or dunked in the river, for this would cause a baby serious shock. They are washed with a particular technique, which is intended to make the baby become hard. So in its heated and unquiet state, bathing cools the baby down and relaxes him in preparation for the stillness of his hammock and rest. After bathing, a baby is breastfed and then put in the hammock to rest. As the baby grows older, he will then be vigorously hammocked, sometimes to a 180-degree angle, and that is also intended to cool the baby down because the baby is hot. Now, mothers, grandmothers and siblings all splash wash babies in this manner, and they do so because babies want to be raised, they want to grow up, they want to be brought up. That's what Shia dwellers say. The more frequently they are bathed, the quicker they will grow and the stronger they will become. This is especially true if the weather is warm in the summer season for fear that the baby will become dry or thin and crisp and brittle. 
that is hard like bone rather than firm and filled with fat as a baby should be. Fatness is a desired characteristic of babies. And this is what makes the baby's body, the developing piramiri, little fish body, as it's called in Niengato, a source of delight and wonder, the baby's little fish body. This term is the, one, the same one used to describe the little fish eaten by the great snake, the celestial snake, and the snake that becomes the river during winter. Babies, like the snake, are not quite human and are associated with the river and it's a final otherness. So we have a sense in which this baby is becoming kin through proper care. A further parallel is that the baby's fish body is still damp and leaky. It has leaky orifices um, and a baby lacks muscular control and strength. These bodies must be made to harden. They must become strong and firm. One woman pointed to her four-year-old son and observed how hard and firm he was. He was Kirimbawa, like women are when they give birth. And he was because he was bathed frequently as a baby and his mother's effective practice also caused him to want to bathe himself frequently as a child. <clears throat> Shia river dwellers appear to be referring to a certain firmness of form, muscles and sinews which develops in tandem with social moral qualities and dispositions, the developing upright moral character of growing infants and his unfolding of his own cool capacities. Now, <clears throat> I just incorporated uh, these few other images here. That's my telephone. Um, I'll just leave it to me. Um, of, of baby bathing um, and of, of being in the hammock and sleeping in the hammock, just to give you an idea of what this actually looks like. And I've just put up here this quote from Bourdieu to think about how we learn how to become and how babies learn how to become people. Now, in the context of high rates of flu and pneumonia, health professionals are one to comment on the danger of early morning bathing. This is particularly the case in neonatal river baths, which nurses associate with a high incidence of neonatal mortality. Of course, such comments are very much at odds with customary practice. Early morning bathing for an expectant mother is described and equated to a, a vitamina, a vitamin supplement or a preventative inoculation, so often prescribed during pregnancy and postpartum it is an essential part of infant growth. Some women did say, however, that they diminished the frequency of their bathing in order to prevent sickness and that they no longer bathe their babies quite so often or in the early hours of the morning as they customarily have done. <coughs> nappies. For many Shia dwellers, nappies are viewed as uncomfortable and are described as a real pain for the baby. Fabric nappies especially and the use of nappy pins signify both heat for the baby and sharpness. Now, because newborn babies are hot and all hot actions and piercing objects and sounds are avoided for newborn babies, nappies with nappy pins are sort of horrifically regarded by Shia dwellers. They're thought to cause harm for the baby and to be uncomfortable and not promote its growth. Also, for this reason, inoculations for babies are regarded with ambivalence. Injections of all kinds resemble the invisible darts used by shamans, and powerful sorcerers, and powerful sorcerers 
um, often used to elicit illness, to make someone ill, to inflict illness, or to acquire shamanic capacities, or both. So shamanic darts, which are akin to ejections for Shia dwellers, this is what, this is what they're usually, usually used for. So babies are an unusual host for the magic dart in this respect. I can only speculate, based on ethnography elsewhere in Amazonia, that such exposure might be appropriate for a baby expected to become a shaman, and that now it would seem all babies have this potentiality, the potentiality of acquiring some shamanic characteristics of a powerful other, the white person, by using their technology. Mm-hmm. Injections for babies are also strange in another respect. For whilst adults should actually actively manage their pain, babies are thought not to have acquired this capacity, and they should therefore not routinely be subject to it to an experience understood to be painful, injection, the injection. However, most babies do receive inoculations, and so this hot, piercing action is countered with an equilibrating logic. So babies avoid sun and the consumption of hot and piquant foods, and this ensures that the effects of the injection are not unnecessarily aggravated. To some, the incorporation to some, the incorporations and acceptance of injections and the caesarean section has conceivably a traceable time of introduction. We could hypothesise when uh, introductions, uh, when injections were introduced and when C- the C-section became available. There are records from the health team, from health teams visiting the Shea River, and but it's also possible that their grandfathers might have had sporadic exposure to the use of injections, maybe with missionaries, and perhaps for quite some time. I wonder, however, how old such apparently ancient practices as baby bathing really is. I wonder this because the mis. The mythscape makes a whole range of practices appear timeless. Since since culture hero Naparuli did these things, it appears to suggest that Shia dwellers have always washed their babies so. However, when we trace oral narratives, we find that this past century has seen changes in the social makeup of these groups. These changes have not solely been informed by the bordering Brazilian nation-state, but rather by the long-worn Arawakan logic of incorporating and subsuming once radically different others, such as forest-dwelling peoples, the Makul people who I mentioned at the beginning of this talk. Shia River dwellers' narratives point to a time only some 100 years ago when the Wadakena were not as hydrocentric as they are today. They describe not having such sophisticated fishing technologies such as the use of weirs and they also describe living in inaccessible river dwellings, inaccessible dwellings rather than on the riverfront as well as having a far more nomadic lifestyle than that of Shia dwellers today. These narratives, these historical narratives, then recount how charismatic Arawakan individuals of Bare descent, much like their mythic hero Naparuli, visited the Shia and drew these forest dwellers to live along the riverfront, firstly dominating these groups, and then through ongoing co-residence and intermarriage, actually actively transforming their social praxis. 
Their charisma enabled the establishment of riverfront villages and initiated new riverine lifestyles associated with their higher status. And these lifestyles meant incorporating new hydrocentric techniques, perhaps even baby bathing, and the grand corpus of mythic narratives that so typify Arawakan groups. Myth and the mythscape appears timeless. Now, riverside dwelling and their openness to others makes the possibility of incorporating new techniques and practices all the easier. But by the same token, mythscaping makes them appear as their own timeless practice. Levi Strauss made this point much more eloquently when he commented, The system has only to be disrupted at one particular point for it immediately to seek to re-establish its equilibrium by reacting in its totality, and it does so by means of a mythology which may be casually linked to history in its parts, but which, is taken, which taken in its entirety resists the course of history and constantly readjusts its own mythological grid so that this grid offers the least resistance to the flow of events, which, as experience proves, is rarely strong enough to break it up and sweep it away. This assertion is phenomenologically based as Shia dwellers, like their Arawakan neighbours, experience their being in the world as inherently transformational and as intrinsically subject to change. We see this again and again in fishing techniques and in the incorporation of a range of new technologies, including those of how to make and raise children, and the particular types of persons who, who live in the changing world defined by the river and the powerful outsiders who live and travel it. Shia dwellers consider themselves to be highly knowledgeable in the matter of giving birth, caring for and raising children, which are mindfully executed practices that unravel in this hydrocentric environment and which have perhaps become more intensive over recent years. I have drawn inspiration from the work of Christina Torren, who urges us to rethink classical disciplinary divisions, forwarding a new paradigm in which mind is a function of the whole person, constituted over time in intersubjective relations with others in an environing world. Persons unfold in particular environments thanks to their solicited dialogues with others with whom they live, making each person both the product of and the continual realisation of his or her history. This makes mind the emergent product of, con- of a continual process of becoming. Concordant with work in neurobiology, Torun makes, assert- makes the assertion that the environment we visually perceive is determined largely by the activity in which we are currently engaged, and that meaning-making is a constant, autopoetic process. Torun argues that in this project, ethnographically thick descriptions can help us understand the mind, and based on these, she says, it becomes clear that the biological the psychological and the social-cultural are not discrete functioning domains but fused aspects of a unitary phenomenon, the phenomenon of human autopoiesis. In this context, context, autopoiesis means the process of self-crafting that necessarily and continuously unfolds in an intersubjective environment of others. 
Finally, I have also suggested that now biomedical te techniques and practices are evaluated according to a humoral logic specific to Northwest Amazonian Arawakan groups, and that this logic forms part of their defining lifestyle and maintains their status. Thank you.